episode of Bell and Gossip Podcast, we welcome Bill Knight, an HVAC consultant who conducted a research study on the effectiveness of HVAC systems, taking into account energy use, initial cost, and life expectancy. For engineers who specify heating and cooling in commercial buildings, life cycle costs shouldn't be overlooked in the specification process. Welcome, Bill Knight. Thank you so much for coming on uh, and talking with me about it, for sure. Um, yep. So, Xylem, uh, you know, about a six months to about a year ago, I've been working with Bill uh, very closely. You know, I think we're, we were researching some of the things in the HVAC world, and uh, we worked with Bill to kind of come up with a, an energy study, if you will, particularly to schools. Um, and, and some of the systems that we were really interested in exploring, because there's a lot of, you know, ups and downs and misnomers on different types of systems, and, and engineers really have an awful lot to choose from when they go for a particular design. And some like uh, more than others, depending. So what we asked Bill to do is kind of do a, a study, an energy study, life cycle study, over about three to six schools and exploring different technologies. Um, so some of those technologies we looked at were water source heat pump, geothermal, water-cooled chillers with rooftop VAV, air-cooled chillers and rooftop units, um, VRF is another one for the middle schools. Uh, and then we looked at rooftop unit VAV, and then we did a, a you know, which, you know, it seems to be very popular as well as VRF and elementary retrofit. So today what we're going to talk about is a little bit about the study, how Bill approached it, um, some of his findings, and, and it, you know, it's a very encompassing study that, that really covers an awful lot of things. So I'll tell you what, Bill, I'll, I'll ask you a couple questions and we'll kind of go down that road, but uh, can you explain a little bit of how you approached this, uh, this study? And, and I mean, it seems like it was a, oh, I like to call it a milk, milk chocolatey cluster and how we're supposed to be really diving in there. It doesn't seem like it was a really good straight and narrow to really hit it out. But if you could explain on that a little bit further, it'd be great. Yeah. So, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, what's been going on in the school business in particular, since there's so much activity in that area, particularly in our area here in the Southeast with, with growth and student population and, you know, there's been a lot of changes and a lot of development in the HVAC business and systems the last 10 years with just general equipment, efficiency improvements and the introduction of, of different system types and new arrangements of existing systems. And we just kind of want to take a snapshot of, of things that were out there in this area, kind of cast a broad net and capture all this empirical data that's out there. We really didn't want to look at doing a traditional technical energy model like you would do for lead certification. We've done a lot of those. Um, we were more interested in capturing actual data. We want to go see, you know, what are the major school systems in this area doing? What kind of systems are they putting in? How are they operating in place? And what's been the actual energy performance for them? So, you know, we, we looked at, at a group of schools in this area, and we wanted to look at all different systems, as you mentioned. So we looked at everything from VRF to water-cooled chillers, and we looked at, at you know, schools around that 100,000, 150,000 square foot uh, size, which seems like a popular size. And... Uh, we just wanted to gather data, you know, and, and put it put it all together, uh, look at the operating costs and, and what it costs to build it and get that information and stretch it out for 10, 20, 30 years and, and just see, see how things are going to look. 
and uh, and that's what yeah. we did. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, what I really like, to be frank, is I really like the simplistic approach you took. Uh, I mean, this thing could have been, to your point, sliced and diced and six ways from Sunday. I mean, the reality is, uh, what's the easiest way to take a look at something that and compare a, a number of systems, and we're talking six or seven systems here. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming a little bit, but uh, you probably looked at uh, a project start to finish within reason, right? So can you talk us through a little bit of how that worked? Did you, is it just installed cost and then maintenance cost and then utilities or, or how was that, uh, how did you go about that? Also, thing different about this study, I guess you could say would just be that we use the actual utility bills, you know, after the building had been in place for a number of years, you know, that first year is, is kind of crazy, so to speak, you know, when you move in, you're still under warranty and things are getting tweaked and changed and the owner doesn't know how to operate the building yet. And so we knew that if, if you were going to apply this system in this area, that this would be a good indicator of how the building was going to operate over an extended period of time. So rather than, you know, do an energy model with, with a, a calculated set of, of 22 assumptions, we just wanted to use the empirical data of the utility bills. Um, we gathered uh, construction data from contractor pay applications or other information that we could get a hold of on what the system costs were, the actual system costs on on the on the construction project. Um, and then we used ASHRAE data for life cycle cost recommendations and then even looked at that for different stretches of time because sometimes things change and buildings get renovated or changed into something different. So we kind of wanted to look at scenarios well if we if we shorten the building life to the system like this is what it looks like or if we take a traditional institutional 30-year look you know this is what it looks like so you know the big thing here was looking at actual data and look at, at different lifespans yeah and and I, I mean based on the type of equipment that was there um and using some of the ashray and, and ashray has got that guide i believe that tells the uh, life cycle and how what the useful life of a piece of equipment is um yeah and, and which is kind of interesting yeah and it was based on you know it was like a not a call in but like a, a survey monkey type thing where people could give ashray their data and they would compile it, and they did that for a couple of years and got a good amount of data. Um, and then they used their traditional data that, you know, the handbook committees had put together over time for system life. Um, so they, they have gathered a lot more data here recently about system life. Some systems are still fairly new, and we don't have a whole lot of data on but for the most part, you know, that collection that ASHRAE did a few years ago, they kind of stopped it because they thought they had enough information and that, that technical study time was over. So we tried yeah. to use the most recent information. So let me ask you about that a little bit because, uh, you know, with, with seven different systems, were there, was there anything that really just as a surprise kind of jumped out at you? Um, e even if you were to take a slice of time or over the entire project, uh, that was a little bit of a surprise? Well, you know, I've been doing it long enough where, you know, nothing really shocks me, but it, it, 
you know, the, the, the life of the system, since we looked at different lifespans, did make a big difference on, on how you looked at it. And whether it was new construction or retrofit, of course, you know, that, that made a big difference too. You know, it, the study pretty much came out the way we thought it would based on past, you know, traditional energy studies and just looking right. at energy star ratings and what we've been able to get energy star rated. There weren't a whole lot of big surprises, but uh, the life, uh, the life cycle of the building does matter. You know, if you're an institutional owner and you're going to be in the building 50 years, you know, the system that you choose, it, it makes a really, it's a, it's a major economic decision. Sure. So I would imagine from a maintenance perspective as well and, and, and how long is that really going to last, et cetera. I mean, you know, some of the things um, that were surprising <laughs> to me um, and, and surprising, not surprising and a little bit there was, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in uh, designs in the Southeast and other areas of the country is that geothermal. And I think we were looking at it at one point and it said something about, you know, I, I was surprised and thought thinking, well, geothermal, it's the most efficient system. It should be winning. It should be number one. And it didn't come out that way. And I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, or maybe you can expand on it a little bit, but Something, something happened with the wells or how it was initially installed or originally designed or, or something along those lines that really prevented it from being that number one. I mean, it was it was right up there, but um, I would have thought that would have been number one as opposed to, say, water source. Heat yeah, it, it, you know, if you, yeah, if you, if you look at the results of the study and the graphs, uh, you know, it's clearly the most energy efficient, but the cost of the wells and the maintenance issues there, you know, um, it pushed it to a close second. It's still, you know, a really good choice, still very economically feasible. It's just that that well cost and, and you know, a lot of the systems were not uh, what I would call a hybrid system. So, you know, there, mm -hmm. there's a smarter way to do it these days. People have figured out you can kind of put half the wells in and supplement you know, those, those peak days, so to speak. So you don't spend half your money for 10% of the time. Um, I think right. as that gets adopted, you're going to see a lot more truly cost-effective ground source heat pump systems that the well, the well drillers and the technology and the QC on the wells, you get your well life. Uh, you're not putting in as many wells and you just supplement, you know, with a cooling tower and a boiler. That's, you know, we didn't study one of those, but that's probably going to be a pretty good option in the future, too. It's just when you look at the most effective system and the second effective system, which were water source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps, uh, the, the ground source heat pumps were the most uh, energy efficient system, uh, but they were penalized a little bit because of that well cost. Sure. Want to learn more about how Xylem is solving water in areas like municipal water, stormwater management, and water treatment? Listen to Through the Water Cycle, our latest show covering all things in water utilities today. Episodes are available to stream or download now in the Solving Water Xylem podcast feed, wherever you listen to podcasts. And, I, you know, obviously in looking some of it too, um, it, it maintenance cost and, and, and each one of these has their own different um, scenario of doing maintenance, right? I mean, 
how, how the maintenance staff is going to be there, how they can deal with it. Um, are they staffed to take care of it, say a chiller application, or is it more apt where you have other areas within the, the Southeast that, you know, the, the school maintenance personnel may not be uh, equipped to deal with a chiller and may have to deal more so with a heat pump or a rooftop unit. So a lot of those factors seem to really come into play when, when decisions are being made. I, I mean, it's just, it's very interesting to think about this from a life cycle cost perspective in my mind. And, you know, some of the things that I would say in South Carolina and even the Southeast is humidity becomes a big issue and the amount of outside air. Um, how, I mean, you probably know these, how is that really uh, affected in, uh, in the schools and the school district? I mean, do you see a, a change in a trend on using uh, different technologies to reduce that outside air so that they can reduce their overall energy cost? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, the big trend a while back, you know, probably going back almost 20 years really is the implementation of dedicated outside air system or systems or DOAS uh, systems. And then what's come into play and what we've really had a lot of success with here recently is uh, cold plasma, air cleaning, bipolar ionization, you know, using the IAQ method within standard 62 to reduce your outside air. And then, you know, if you can use that technology in traditional systems like a water source heat pump, and get your outside air down to an amount that, that that heat pump can handle by itself, then you don't even need a DOAS system anymore. And then the manufacturers have figured out how to put a very effective reheat system in these water source heat pumps too. And that interesting. That's that's a very promising combination that is really just getting implemented and probably in about four or five years, it's going to be interesting to see how these systems uh, have performed uh, with lower amounts of outside air to limit uh, that and the air cleaning and the uh, free reheat uh, within the water source heat pump, you know, using that condenser water to, to get free reheat. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, as an engineer myself, not you know PE by any means, but looking at overall systems and and getting the chance to do that. I mean, I got to think a ton of load obviously comes from making sure you have that indoor uh, air quality to the to the right level. And bipolar seems to be really pushing it and helping that. I mean, I got to think that would help reduce some of the size of the uh, of the water source heat pump or a geothermal for that matter and tonnage because you're just not having to deal with that hot humid air. Or, or not as much, let me rephrase, um, and make oh, that overall ownership a little better, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, you can cut there. your outside airflow in half and really just have enough to keep the building pressurized and the air cleaning, you know, takes care of all the contaminants per standard 62. You know, really does help with, it's really a, a negative infinity payback because just from the beginning, you know, it reduces your construction costs and tonnage. So simply by adding these devices, you're saving money on, on day one. Yeah, I would imagine that's, uh, that's going to become, especially in schools where, uh, you know, keeping students healthy and, and getting that learning uh, up for all the students so that they can pay attention. And, 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 and dealing with that balance of first cost is going to be pretty darn important, I would imagine, for a school district for sure. Absolutely. And most local authorities and authority having jurisdictions that govern various school districts have accepted, you know, this design philosophy too, using the IEQ method. Um, 
So it's it's been implemented fairly widely here the last five to ten years. Yeah, sure, and I've, I've seen some popularity of it as well. Um, well, I, anything else that you can uh, you can think of on the uh, on the report that were uh, that were really outstanding by any means? I mean, I see a lot of balances back and forth um, on the install cost, replacement allocation, thirty year or fifteen year maintenance cost. I mean. If, if let's say you weren't a school institution um, and you weren't really looking at that 30-year cost, but maybe a 10-year cost, do you think, you know, with, obviously there's a lot of systems, it would move the system around quite a bit because we're really dealing with that life cycle cost. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. And then what, what happens there is, is you really big applied four or five systems, chillers and boilers gets knocked out, and then you just – the owner's got a decision to make between water source heat pumps and rooftop units and DRF um, of some configuration. And that that's your traditional model in smaller buildings and, and commercial construction. Um, you still see a lot of water source heat pumps in office buildings. So it's it what it does is it just knocks out the bigger systems um, that you see in institutional buildings of larger size is over a hundred thousand square feet yeah yeah it seems i mean it, it's it's amazing how big um you know life cycle can really play on that type of system and what engineers and, and con you know and owners you're really thinking about when they're making that selection um sometimes it, it seems like it can be uh, really easy to go off of a first cost uh decision when the reality is is really taking that step back and looking at the overall uh, cost for an entire life of that building or how long that owner plans on holding it um, for sure as an asset. Yeah, I mean, um, when you look at, at the grass we prepared, I mean, the colors are are showing you that the the energy costs should really be the driving factor. It's very clear. Sure. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right for sure. <clears throat> awesome. Well, hey, Bill, I wanted to thank you for the 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 uh, talking with me today and and talking through some of these uh, design considerations, how we approached it, and um, you know uh, even about the bipolarization. I I think uh, I'd love to explore that at a later date. I mean, I think that some of the new and up and coming technology, um, especially implementing that in some of the hydronics and um, the hydronic. Uh, designs that's just going to make these units um, hydronic, you know, as a system more efficient and more effective. So um, I want to thank you for the time today, and uh, we'll definitely be having you back on here for uh, for another follow-up for sure. Sure. Be glad to. Thank you. I appreciate it, Bill. Um, anybody that would like to see a little bit more and get a little more detail on the study, you can go to the Bell & Gossett website to uh, take a look at the synopsis. Um, I think it'll be very interesting for everyone to uh, get their opinion and, and read through this uh, wonderful study that Bill's put together. Uh, everyone, please stay tuned for the next following podcast that uh, is looking to come shortly after this one.